All right. So this week on Not Your Mama's Mental Health, we have Allie with us to talk about the journeys of mental health. Nothing is off limits. Ask me whatever you want. Okay. So we'll do this one a little bit differently. Why don't we start off by just you telling us what your mental health journey is? So I feel like I'm kind of a rare, like not rare, but like unusual in that I'm pretty sure that I came out of the womb mentally ill, (laughs) Um, like legit, because they could never understand why I was having dissociative episodes as young as like four or five when they're really like generally seen in in kids who have had trauma. So for a really long time, I hate to say this, like therapists that I went to were like convinced that I was like repressing a memory of like my dad molesting me or something. And this was the 90s. So they were really hammering on that. And I'm like, no, seriously, like my dad's a great guy. This has nothing to do with him. And I struggled a bit harder when, you know, my mom and I kind of dealt with a lot of like my childhood mental illness between us because it was the early 90s and nobody really thought to go to a therapist um and I don't know how much of it they were like oh that's mentally ill or oh that's just a child with a really wacky imagination but I kept notebooks of the things that I was afraid of like notebooks full of things that scared me which I don't think is normal (laughs) um not at all um and just you know I'm I'm pretty certain that like you know now in adulthood I'm getting diagnosed with ADHD I'm like have been through a lot of therapy now so I can look back on those childhood things and be like oh you were just you know me having undiagnosed ADHD cool got it um so that's you know kind of started out started out that way um got a little traumatized when my mom got sick when I was like 11 or 12 um and that was really rough for me that was a really hard struggle with my depression I went to some really dark places I had no coping skills like none like I was my mom's miracle baby so I grew up super duper sheltered like I wasn't allowed to watch the Simpsons I couldn't even touch MTV (laughs) like I'm telling you I was sheltered and that was all well and good until the person sheltering me couldn't be there anymore to shelter me and I had no coping skills I had absolutely no coping skills for any of the stuff that I was going through. And so I developed really unhealthy coping skills like self-injury because that physical pain made more sense to me than the dark places that my brain was going. I kind of developed around the time that I was like 15, 16, I developed like debilitating panic attacks. It was really, really rough there for a while. And being the early 2000s, I didn't really have a good time in the psych world mm-hmm. um, when my family was like, okay, there's definitely something like we need to take her somewhere. Something is not quite right. Um, and, you know, just obviously like they, they did the best that they could with the tools that they had, but being the era that it was and living in rural North Carolina, like mental health didn't wasn't on anybody's radar really you know what I mean yeah it wasn't like a priority for anybody 
Exactly. So, I mean, they, they did recognize like, Hey, you know, clearly like going through your mom dying is, is a really rough experience. We should probably get her to talk to somebody, but the somebodies that I had to talk to like, weren't, weren't great. We were in rural North Carolina. Um, so I had some not great experiences with psychiatrists and psychologists and, you know, all of that along the way had some terrible experiences with lots of different medications along the way until finally, thankfully, like as things are becoming more, we're making mental health, like not as taboo. Yeah. And it's easier to find, you know, now I'm, I'm speaking after like five years of solid therapy. So my viewpoint's a little different than it was back then, but yeah, that's, that's kind of my story in a nutshell, I guess. Okay. Now, um, do you think with having such a hard time with therapy when you were younger made it harder to go into therapy when you started therapy about five years ago? Or do you think it was just kind of like, oh, that was that. This is something new. Oh, no, absolutely. Like, absolutely. Partially because you want to be like, I, I experienced And it was kind of like a bunch of stops and starts, if I'm being honest, over probably the last decade of me going, I should probably get back into therapy, going, having what I considered to be a negative experience, which at the time, what I considered a negative experience was I stopped self-injury on my own. There was nobody to help me. I tried going, you know, talking to it about a therapist in the very early 2000s when I was still in high school. And the comments that they had were basically telling me that they were not equipped to handle that. But, and I quote, let's get you to somebody else who can stop you from carving yourself up like a turkey. Oh, wow. Yeah. And those words really like, I'm, I'm sure she didn't mean what it sounded like by it. You know, it was a licensed therapist. So I'm sure that maybe that was just an error in her part, but that stuck with me for years. Um, like that stuck in my head for so long. And then I would like start trying to go to therapy and I was like, okay, I need to be honest. I need to be transparent. Cause I'll be honest when I was a teenager and they sent me, I lied my ass off because I was like, I don't want to be institutionalized. And I had a feeling that if anybody really understood, like where my brain was at at the time, I should have been institutionalized. Oh, same. Um, Yeah, but that was my fear. And so I lied my ass off to avoid it. Um, And I would have experiences where I would try going to therapy. And as soon as I was transparent and honest, and I mentioned having had a history of self-injury, it wasn't like, oh, wow, that's, you know, amazing that you could like fix that shit yourself. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) It was that became what the whole session was about. And I'm like, I haven't done that in, since I was like 18, 19, like, let's not, like, I don't want to get stuck here. Like, this is not what I'm coming about. But as soon as you say the word self-injury, that's where they get stuck. Yeah. And so I would, you know, as soon as that would happen, or as soon as they would try to push a medication on me, and because I'd had a lot of negative experiences with medication, as soon as either one of those two things happened, I would stop going. Seems accurate. So for, for yes. a lot of people. 
Yeah. So it, it definitely, those were my two things. And they happened at every single first session that I went to for a while is they would either become fixated on the self-injury portion, which I didn't want to talk about, or they would immediately jump into leading with a medication, which is fair because I did need to be medicated, but I wasn't ready for that conversation yet. So as soon as one of those two things would happen, I would peace out. I would never come back. And it took April kind of, um, that's my sister for anybody who doesn't know, um, kind of sitting me down and she had started one of the newer medications called Vibrid. And it was working really well for her. She'd been on it for about a year at that point. She sat me down and she goes, I don't know if you realize this, but you're depressed. And I was like, no, I'm fine. I'm not in the deep, dark place. I'm not, you know, like she was there through the whole thing. So she knows I'm like, no, 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 I'm not depressed because, you know, anymore, because I've, I've dealt with all that. I'm not doing these things anymore. And she was like, but you're still depressed. You're just, you go to work and then you come home you watch TV for a little bit and then you go to sleep. She's like, you don't, you're not living your life. You're just surviving it. You're like and high functioning at work. And then when you come home, you're just like, okay, I've yes. used all of my energy for the day. Let me just sit here and be for, for what I would tell myself. Let me just sit here and be a potato. And yeah. And like my, my weekends would be the same way. You know, I didn't have, like, I, I used up all of my ability to function as a normal human at work for 40 hours a week. And then any time that I wasn't at work, I basically like just shut off. And she was like, just because like, you're gauging it by, you know, can you go to work and, and contribute to like, we are raised to believe that humans have to. And she's like, but you're not enjoying your life and you can't. And kind of like over the course of a few months, she talked to me into trying, you know, going to her therapist and, and, you know, making an appointment and hearing, like hearing what they had to say, hearing them out and like giving it a shot. Um, And I'm really glad that I did because I didn't realize until I actually properly, you know, was properly medicated that I really had been like, there's years that I can't remember because they're, you know, big gaping chunks of my memory were eaten up by depression. You know what I mean? Oh, 100%. Um, like all of middle school for me. Don't remember. Yeah. The blur. Uh, the year 2017. Don't remember it like at all. It's not. There. Yeah. It doesn't exist. Yeah. That's that's pretty much where I was at now. I realized that and I was like, holy crap. And like getting properly medicated was not a cure-all, but I I'd say that it raised the floor of the hole that I was in and didn't realize it. I was closer to being able to climb out. And it's it definitely helped kind of bring me up a few steps to where I needed to be to really actually work through a lot of the stuff that I didn't even realize that I needed to like work through and unpack. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of people don't realize is medication is there to help, not there to be the cure-all. So I'm glad. Exactly. That, so I'm glad it was there to help to be able to be like, okay, so we can unpack this box now, you know, box by box slowly and slowly. Now, um, you say that you were able to stop help, 
um, self-injuring yourself, which fantastic. That is, that is great to hear. Um, yes. The way that I stopped self-injuring was my husband told me if he ever found my, me doing it again, he would stab me. And <laughs> as horrible as that is, it was like, well, I don't want to get stabbed by someone else. So what were the techniques that you used to stop self-harming? Um, I'll be honest with you. I'm a stubborn ass Capricorn son. Um, so I, I pretty much was just like, I think that part of it was when I was getting married the first time, um, which was a whole nother trauma in and of itself. Don't get married in, in like 20, just don't do it. Um, and I realized as I was standing there being brought these dresses to try on that there was pretty much nothing that was the style at the time that I was comfortable wearing because my shoulders were covered with scars. And that was the first time that I was really like introduced to a situation where I couldn't keep my scars covered. And it you know, as much as it probably wasn't healthy, that that's what stopped me, but embarrassment, I guess, shame kind of like of people seeing them, because at this point, I managed to keep it so under wraps that no one knew, like outside of, of April, my sister, pretty much nobody else knew because I had somehow managed and and I say somehow managed, but to be fair, like my mom was in the hospital and all these different hospitals trying to figure out what was going on. Um, so my family was really preoccupied. So, you know, maybe if that trauma hadn't been, you know, happening, somebody would have noticed a lot sooner, but I had seriously managed to keep this completely under wraps from anybody. And just that fear of people like, finding out or seeing them and then I was starting to go to these like big girl jobs I guess you know and and then co-workers older co-workers were seeing them on my wrist and I was like mm, I'm not comfortable anymore you know I don't want people to see this and as unhealthy as it was at the time shame is what stopped it I think it and, sucks that that's what stopped it, but it's a good thing that something stopped it. Exactly. Exactly. That's how I look at it. Like I have, I have since kind of unpacked that a little bit further. That was definitely something that I needed to unpack because for a while there, it was my go-to. Like if things got overwhelmed, I would, that would be the first place like my brain would go is like, there's still this, this, because it was almost like an off switch for the panic attacks, if that makes sense. It was like 100%. when the panic attack, yes, when the panic attacks would start and they would be those full body, like awful panic attacks that affect like everything. And just, you know, doing that would be like an instant off. It was like, my mind would immediately shut up. My body would calm down. Like it was and so when I'd be having a panic attack in the future, like, and it was just like constantly like there on the back of my mind, like you can stop this, like you can make it stop like this panic attack. And so I did have to eventually work through it because it's not a healthy coping skill to have. And I had to find healthier coping skills to 
first work through the panic attacks and then just work through any time like my brain gets overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah, no. And I, and I can relate to that because it's like, okay, so I'm having this full body panic attack. Like I can't calm myself down. But if I can get my mind to focus on this one set of pain, then, oh my God, it's everything is so much better. So I think a lot of people can relate to where self-harming comes in, just being a sense of control. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Now, with having a sense of control, and this is just, this is coming from my experience, your hair. Would you say you change your hair up a lot to try and help you feel that sense of control that you don't have now because you no longer cut and, and stuff like that? That was absolutely what started out my crazy like hair journey because as you know like my hair has been pretty much every color every cut every style under the sun and that really started it was that every time you know I would want to do that I would get in the car I would go to the nearest like honestly most of the time it was like hair cuttery because I lived in rural North Carolina yeah and I would walk in and be like I want to do something completely different and basically I was I was destroying my hair by like (laughs) just every time I would be like okay how to fight with you know this guy I'm dating let's go do something completely wildly different with my hair um and I've kept that like I still very much enjoy doing crazy things with my hair especially around big events in my life but I actually find that being healthier overall being like able to have had the space that I needed to work through a lot of the stuff that I needed to work through I've been able to keep that but turn it into something healthier so you know now instead of like I'm depressed I'm gonna go do something with my hair it's like I'm really happy this cool thing happened. I'm going to go do something cool with my hair to kind of like accompany that. Like it's a positive now instead of a a negative. Yes, exactly. I've tried to kind of like turn that because it was something I really wanted to keep because I do enjoy like doing crazy things with my hair, but I'm doing that in a healthy way now too. (laughs) (laughs) I have a uh, Kim, one of my really good friends does my hair and she is a wizard with it. And like I've been able to make all these changes with my hair while keeping my hair really healthy and I feel like that is a really good analogy for my mental health too (laughs) is that I'm I'm able to incorporate like you know that that meme that goes around like especially if you're on TikTok where it's like I don't want to take medication what if I lose my spice and you know I I feel like I've been able to incorporate a lot of my like spice in healthier ways now so it you like you can keep it like you can keep that thing that makes you like you know as long as you can learn how to do it in healthier ways I guess yeah and you can always keep your vibrance and I think that's one thing that people fear with medication is they're gonna turn into a zombie because you have so much stuff presented in media and if you're in different support groups um yeah on Facebook and stuff like that they'll be like oh my god this medication turned me into a zombie but people don't understand that every medication deals with the people deal with it differently. And so that's yeah. why I hate when I see people that are like, oh my God, what are your experiences on this? And then everyone's like, oh my God, it almost, it, people be like, it almost killed me. 
don't try it. And I'm like, well, it right. might have almost killed you, but this might be the life-saving drug for that person. Yeah, and I think that that's what people don't understand is that everybody's brain chemistry is different. Like, you've got, it's going to be some trial and error. And that sucks. You know, it sucks that that's the case. I feel like we got lucky because our therapist did the DNA testing to see which families of drugs worked better for that individual person. But the struggle getting insurance to pay for it was absurd. Like, absolutely absurd. The struggle to get, like, the insurance to pay for it. And just the vibrant in general. But I'm really, you know, like... That part of things was not easy, but the newer drugs, especially that are out there, like definitely give them a shot. Like I know if you've only experienced like the old drugs from like the early 2000s, like a lot of us millennials, um, you know, the stuff that they put us on back then, Zoloft, Zoloft was the thing that made me a zombie and, you know, Prozac and the, the older drugs I never had a good experience with, but the newer drugs that are out now, like Vibrid, are changing the game they're absolutely like changing the game oh 100 because i've tried because i have bipolar disorder so i've tried yeah every ssri under the under the sun which made me want to die and i've tried um every mood stabilizer that i can think of from lithium to seroquel to now that i'm on i'm on raylar and Mm -hmm. that's a brand new drug so trying to get insurance to cover that was like a handbasket and it's, oh, yeah. it's an exp- and what sucks is they don't want to cover it, not because they don't think it's a good drug, but because it's expensive because they're name brands. They exactly. don't have generics yet. And so they freak out about it. And what I would say is stick with it. And if you can find a psychiatrist who will fight for you. Yes, absolutely. That is the important part because oftentimes they can give you samples to get you through. Like, don't be afraid of starting something that's going to like save your life or improve like drastically the quality of your life. I guarantee you, like, even when you think that there's not, there's going to be a way. Like I've had so many times where like changing jobs, like losing insurance, vibrant at the time, like now it's, it's recently dropped drastically in price because it's lived out its five-year patent. Mm -hmm. But at the time that I was between insurance, because I was transitioning jobs, it was like thousands and thousands of dollars to, to buy this. And I got very lucky. I was able to call up my doctor and I said, this is my situation. Can you help me? And they came through with a ton of samples. So sometimes just like for me, and I guess for people like me, I'm, you know, like I said, Capricorn, super proud, don't like to ask for help. But sometimes if you just tell your doctor, like, hey, I'm having trouble affording this, but it's really working for me, like swallow that pride and just say, hey, I need help because this is really letting me live my life and I need to stay on it, but I can't afford it. And oftentimes they can help you find programs and things like that. So, or going you know, directly to the website for that, the yes. manufacturer of the drug because I got a manufacturer coupon because mine um I went a period where I didn't have insurance my medication is $1,400 I went to their website because that somebody told me they were like just go to the website just go to the website I got it for $15 that's amazing yes their website is also like a huge help too because I've had a vibrant manufacturer coupon for like as long as I can remember. And I mean, like, it's, it's 
ridiculous that these are the hoops that we have to jump through just to live like neurotypical people yeah but this is the society that we live in it is don't get me started on that that's a whole different podcast yeah (laughs) yes that's a that's a whole different thing past past making mental health uh for everyone yes yes that would be a different podcast but yeah it is it is problematic but there are there are programs out there so definitely look into that now you said you had dissociative episodes as a child do you still have dissociative episodes now as an adult or has like medication kind of stopped that it's kind of stopped that for the most part um I so I was diagnosed with dissociative depression um about 10 years ago um we're basically my depression like I I comes with you know spicy little dissociative episodes and it hasn't been a huge problem since I've started the vibrant the vibrant has really kind of like leveled that out but if I get like super overwhelmed um super kind of like overstimulated or stressed out um I my brain does still like dissociate and it's kind of just like one of those things that I have learned how to mediate if that makes sense it's kind of like okay I I look at it now as just a sign that maybe my brain needs some rest um like maybe I need to take that day and just read in bed you know, do something like low impact. Cause sometimes when I start, you know, having that kind of dissociative episode, I do realize that it kind of comes hand in hand with like the fact that maybe I haven't been taking as much time for myself. I haven't been, you know, giving myself those like self-care days. And for me and my brain, that's really important to have those days where I'm like, we have a joke in my house where I'm like, I don't wish to be perceived today. <laughs> and uh, like partially, you know, a huge introvert, partially, you know, mentally ill. Um, but they're just days where I'm like, I really, I, I just, I can't human today. My brain's not feeling it. I need some self-care time. And for me, self-care time looks like being completely by myself where I don't have to mask I think I think that's a big part of it so I am I am working through right now a brand new ADHD diagnosis which does explain a lot of things but I'm still processing all the things that it means because ADHD is one of those things that girls have a really hard time getting diagnosed with and that explains why I didn't get diagnosed when I was younger because we learn how to mask better than the boys do faster than the boys do so we learn how to present ourselves as neurotypical people not really fully understanding all the time that the reason that we have these hurdles that other people don't seem to have is because our brains don't work the same way but we never get diagnosed nobody ever tells us hey yeah your brain does work different so for me I'm learning to drop some of that masking behavior because once I you know it it takes a it takes a lot of energy to keep it up. It takes a lot of brain power to keep up that masking. So I'm, I'm learning to unmask around people that I feel comfortable unmasking around. But in the meantime, I usually find that my dissociative episodes mean that I'm, I'm not taking that time to give my brain that rest, to be by myself where I don't have to mask. And I can just 
recharge that way. So I think for me, part of my healing process has been to like learn to listen to my body and figure out what my body is asking for, what my brain is asking for when these things happen. Yeah, definitely. You, you, you learning your body to be like, okay, so what do I need today to be able to be a functioning member of society? Or is it a day where I'm not a functioning member of society and I just need to lay down? Exactly. And I think that when you're mentally ill, it's an illness just like any other. And it's hard for us to realize that because society has spent so long telling us that it's not. And we just need to get over it. But it's, I look at it as I wouldn't tell my aging father who has severe arthritis and uses a cane leg and, and diabetic neuropathy in his legs. If he said, you know, I just feel like I can't really walk around today because my legs are hurting me. I would never tell him like, Hey, you just need to buck up. <laughs> like, I know that your legs are excruciating pain right now, but let's go for a walk. You just need to get out of the house. That'll help you. So I've learned to, to do that with myself, to treat it like an illness. Like I would never ask somebody who had like, you know, leg issues or, or whatever to just get up and go for a walk when their leg hurts. So if I wake up and my brain's not feeling great, you know, like any other long-term illness that you're going to have for your entire life, you've got to listen to your body. And like sometimes trying to force yourself through and, and not taking that time that your brain might need, you know, I found that that didn't help me. So I stopped doing it. I stopped trying to force my brain. And on those days when my brain's just like, no, we need a rest. I do everything I can to give it that rest. Exactly. Cause you're, it's it, it, exactly like you said, it's not like you're going to tell somebody who needs glasses. Oh, well just, just, just try harder. Just squint more. Yeah. Say eventually, like you don't tell them that you, t- you, you tell them, okay, well go get glasses, go get contacts, go get LASIK, go do something be able to make yourself see. So I, and it's good to approach de- any of the episodes like that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, second here. How many, I know you didn't get diagnosed with ADHD until you were an adult. How many misdiagnoses have you had in your life? Do you think? <laughs> so many, so many, so too many. Um, back when I was first going, it was almost like, so to kind of put it into perspective, I was raised super, we were poor, like we were pretty poor. So the way that I was able to afford going to therapy was my dad worked for the city of Virginia beach and they have what's called an EAP program. Um, an employee assistance program, and it extends to the family of the employee. But as a result, I was never really, and and it was kind of like a juggle between him and my sister-in-law, who also worked for the city, trying to use her EAP appointments for me and getting approved. Um, But I was never really going to the same therapist twice. And I wasn't going on a regular basis because we had to stretch out these appointments and like, you know, make them last, I guess. So it was also they're seeing like it, a ton of people for the city. So I would get an appointment and then sometimes wouldn't be able to go back for like three, four weeks because they didn't have another opening anytime soon. And then it would be with, you know, potentially a different therapist who would just look at my chart and be like, okay, let's pick up where they left off. 
But as a result, I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. I was diagnosed with bipolar personality disorder. I was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, um, which was, I'm pretty sure because by that point I was completely over it. And I was a little emo kid, like in every sense of the word. And I showed up in my trip pants and my dyed black hair. And they were probably like, mm, yeah, she's got, she's on the dark triad for sure. Like, let's just, let's just throw her in there. But that one threw me for a loop. Um, turns out I had none of those things. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with having them, but those are some big diagnoses to level at somebody in one meeting. But I didn't know that at the time. You know, I'm a child. I'm, I'm literally still a teenager and I've been extremely sheltered up until this point. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I think that probably back then I my knowledge of the way that the world worked was severely stunted because my mom, you know, and, and I've had to, you know, it's hard to work through your baggage with somebody when they're no longer here. Yeah. Because you have that, that instant desire to protect the dead, if that makes sense to, you know, keep your memories of them intact. But I had to learn that I could explore the ways in which my mom had her own mental illnesses that were never taken care of because that was the time that she lived in and still maintain the fact that we had an amazing relationship and I loved her dearly, but my mom was extremely overprotective, extremely like, just to give you some backstory, I would go to school and when I got to school, as soon as I got off the bus, I would call her from the payphone and we would talk until it was time for me to go to class on lunch I would finish my lunch really fast and then I would go to the payphone and I would call my mom and we would talk until it was time for me to go back to class my mom fostered an extremely codependent relationship with me because I was the miracle baby and I don't think she knew that she was you know what she was doing I think that she was doing her best to be an amazing mother with the tools that she had because she wanted to be a mother for so long but the problem is, is that the tools she had weren't the tools that she needed, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so I had zero, my mom had handled every single aspect of my life until very suddenly she wasn't there anymore. And I was suddenly left to try to figure out how to manage my own life. And part of that, I just knew to trust doctors. So whatever they told me, I thought that that was accurate, but after the experience of being put on an antipsychotic that I don't, I didn't need that very nearly killed me for real. <laughs> um, like I, I was in this fog because this was a medication that I really, really did not need. And it was a heavy duty, like antipsychotic because this guy met me once looked at the way I was dressed and decided I had antisocial personality disorder. And I ended up in this fog for a good two week period. And it was really awful. Like that was the closest I ever legitimately came to unaliving myself, if you know what I mean, yeah. um, is with that medication, because I feel like I always, every time I skirted that, there was always something holding me back that medication like put me into such a fog of not being myself 
that that was like the closest I got to. And that was a big part that played into my fear for almost, you know, 10 years after that of going back to a therapist. Oh yeah, definitely. Because yeah, because they, it was like every other, every other appointment, they would be throwing around another potential diagnosis and none of them like took the time to actually like it was almost like a, a assembly line like okay well let's just give her give her something to get her out of here and not actually like work on any of the issues that I had so it was always this new diagnosis and at the end of it you know now years and years and years later I'm you know just now finding out what probably is is the true diagnosis of ADHD you know what I'm saying like I feel like that probably played a big role in everything for the past, you know, like 35 years of my life behind the scenes. And I didn't, no idea. I had no clue and neither did anybody else. Yeah. And that's, what's so scary about those misdiagnoses, especially when you get put on medication and get, you get misdiagnosed and get put on medication that doesn't help. Yes. Because from my experiences, because I have bipolar some people with bipolar disorder can take SSRIs. Other people cannot. I am in the cannot category. And right. I see it. The day after Christmas in 2015, I almost unalived myself because my medication was making me that. Yeah. Just that out there. Like, I will forever thank my oscillating fan for tripping me. And making me be like, oh, no, I'm in pain now. I I should probably tell my husband that I was about to kill myself. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that, that is, I think, a legitimate scary part about anybody trying to seek medication is the fact that these medications are altering your brain so I personally feel like I needed a very strong connection with my therapist and I needed a very good support system in my family, which, you know, my sister's amazing support system. My best friend is a great support system. My partner is a great support system now. So being able to, you know, to have people that you trust implicitly and go to them and say, Hey, I'm starting this new medication. I might not notice if things are, you know, not going well with it. So can you please be a little bit more aware of me and my personality and any changes that you notice, but also, you know, having a therapist that you have that mutual understanding, that mutual trust. So if you call them and say, Hey, this isn't working, that it's instantly, okay, let's find something that will, let's, let's get you off of this medication and not what I used to get told back in the day, which was, oh, you need to stay on it for a few more weeks and just give it a shot. And I'm like, you don't understand. Like I'm, I wake up every day wanting to die. Like I can't stay on this for three more weeks to give it a shot. Yeah. And that's what I think doctors are realizing more now is that patients are realizing their changes more quickly. So it's not going to take as long as it did previously. Cause right. I'm somebody who I, my stepmom will look at side effects for me and then I'll be on the medicine and I'll be like, Hey, is this a side effect that I should like look out for? Like, is this something that I should talk to my doctor about? 
And my husband is also very good of being like, hey, I don't like you're, you're acting kind of weird. Like this isn't normal for you. So right. That support system is definitely great. And now having doctors that are more into being like, oh, okay, so you you feel like this isn't working for you. Let's try something else. Right, exactly. It's so important. Now, do you see two doctors? Do you see like a th- like a talk therapist and a psychiatrist, or do you have? Are you one of the lucky ones that gets everything all in one? No, I do see two different doctors. I do see a talk therapist, and then I do see um, a doctor for you know my medication. Um, I have been very lucky that they are in the same practice um, and very good friends. So, you know, any, anything that needs to get shared, you know, has the ability to be shared. Um, and they have a really good working relationship. So it's not like this doctor from like, you know, this whole other practice is calling in criticizing or something, you know what I'm saying? Like, I find that that has been a good thing for me. Um, your mileage may vary. The, the easiest thing, the, the most important thing I think about finding a therapist is to make sure that you're on the same page, to make sure that you feel like they understand you, that they're advocating for you. And if you're not comfortable, walk out. Like I, I'm just, I'm a big believer that anything to do with mental health, if you don't instantly have that gut feeling of, I trust this person, it's not going to work because of just the nature of mental illness. Maybe that's like me specific, but I feel like the nature of mental illness, if you don't trust that doctor, you're not going to get the help that you need there. Oh, definitely. Because of, yeah. 100% agree. Because when I was a child, I saw my mom's therapist. So I automatically assumed my mom's therapist was going to tell my mom what I was talking about. When I was a young adult like 1920 I was seeing my mom's couples counselor so I automatically assumed oh my god they're going to talk about me in their couples counseling session and right when I got to the doctor that I'm seeing now I won't say her name I talk about her a lot but I won't say her name out of respect for her right um but at the end of our first session she said do you want to hire me and I think oh, I in, like that. in that moment I knew I was like oh I'm in charge you want to work for yes. me. You want to work together. And I think the one thing um, that another thing she said is you can fire anybody that you want to. Yes, so, absolutely. Like my I've been since I've started seeing her, I've been through three psychiatrists because well, one fired me because I just stopped showing up for appointments. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> um, and then another one just wasn't listening to what I was saying. And basically told me at one point, well, if you keep having problems and I can't help you anymore. And when he said that, I said, oh, okay, peace out. Yeah, like, no, that's that's literally your job. <laughs> so bye. I totally get that. Yeah, it's it's taken a lot. Like, it takes a lot sometimes to find because I, I look at it as you're not just looking for somebody based on their knowledge. You're looking for somebody like you have to have a level of comfort with them that maybe you don't need to have for the guy that you're going to see because you've got a sinus infection. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. you, you're, you're about to tell them like your deepest, darkest traumas. Like there needs to be like a level of comfort there or you're not going to be honest enough to get real help. Exactly. 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 That is 100% just 
is 100 percent. yeah because the the problem with mental illness being in your brain is that we have a tendency to protect ourselves like that ego there has like that tendency to want to look as good as possible in front of other people so if you can't find a therapist that you feel comfortable with your ego is not ever going to really let you fully unmask in front of this person like fully like just let them see the things that they need to see that are going on in your brain to help you yeah so trust in your trust in your medical team is probably the outside of your family support system and your friend your family and your friend support system the support in your medical team is the most important yeah and don't get discouraged if you don't find that like immediately like that's my partner is starting like his mental health journey as well and that's kind of one of the first things that I told him because he's still in that that place where he's not very like trusting of doctors and medication because of past experiences and I'm like that's the thing though is that it it is going to take some time you are going to have to go it's it's like finding you know a partner like a life partner like you go on these first dates and you figure out if you feel comfortable talking to this person so basically you're just like going on these like interviews or first dates with your therapist and you know it's not always going to work out sometimes you're going to need to go to you know, five or six before you find something that, that clicks. And you will find in therapists that will, if you don't think that they're good work partners for you, that they can maybe suggest somebody else that would be better for you. Then that's one thing that I really enjoy about the area that we're in is it feels like therapists and stuff are all kind of in a way interconnected where they can be like, oh, okay, so I'm not working for you, but I know this person who works with these sets of problems and can really help. Um, right. I have a family member who is recently seeking therapy and stuff for the first time, and they use this uh, website. I think it's called like Psychology Today or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'll have to get the information from them again. But literally, like you put in the insurance that you have, or if you don't have insurance. And you put in the problems and stuff that you're dealing with. And it'll give you like a list of people in the area that will help you. Or that you, can, really cool. that you can connect with. And I think that's probably a huge leap in what we're looking for in getting help and making it so it's not so stigmatized. So it's not what our parents grew up with and what, what we grew up with too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I also tell people, I'm like, let yourself make snap judgments. You know what I mean? Like, so we generally like when we're in public and we're just interacting with people, we try not to judge them based on anything that we might assume about them or anything like that. But I'm like, I don't you know, when you're talking about a therapist and looking for somebody that's going to feel like comfortable to you. I try to seek out people that I know have, you know, things that I would feel comfortable with. So I being bisexual, I look for a therapist who is queer friendly. Um, I look for a therapist who might even be queer themselves um, because they'll better understand the things that I'm going through as a queer person. 
moving through the world, I look for women because I am more comfortable talking, like sitting down and talking about my problems with a woman, not just because I feel like she would better understand me moving through the world as a, as a woman, you know what I mean? Like I, so I look for like queer women. Um, I try to like, you know, like sometimes we try to not like, you know, like, oh, you know, we shouldn't judge that about a person. It's not about judging that about a person, but it's about knowing what you're comfortable with. And, and, you know, it's okay to exclude parts of the population when you're looking for a therapist, because it's all about who is going to be the most comfortable person for you to talk to. So kind of like think about who is the most, like for me, I just sat down for a minute and I thought about like, who do I know, just barring their psychological knowledge, who do I know that I can just sit down and spill my guts to them? And now let me try to find a therapist who reminds me of that person and like makes it easy for me to sit there and just instantly feel comfortable with them. Exactly. 100%. Like my, my psychiatrist is a man. But my therapist is a woman, and I don't think yes. I'll ever see um, a therapist that's a man because they just, they just don't understand. There are things that I'm that I'm going through that they just don't they just wouldn't be able to get. So I I definitely agree with you there with with finding somebody who you align with. Now, it's been about forty five minutes, and that's about the time frame that I like to keep. Okay. Did you have any questions for me that you could think of that you want to um, talk about? I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Okay. That and that and that's fine. Not everybody <laughs> does. Most people don't because I kind of just like throw that on people just in case, like at the end of everything that we've talked about. So this week we've had Allie on to talk about just our mental health journeys in general and finding help. Now remember, Not Your Mama's Mental Health is just a place where everyday people can find everyday people going through the same things that they are. This is not a place to find medical help. If you do need medical help, please search for medical help. Uh, if you don't, just have fun listening. But once again, I'm Katie. I love y'all. And have a great rest of your day.